This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Omer Friedlander, author of the short story collection, The Man Who Sold Air in the Holy Land. All the stories, like you said, are are set in Israel and have to do with very sort of place-specific issues, but I, I felt like I needed some kind of distance from it. And I think English allowed me to be more sort of probing and, and ironic and, and make something that's familiar into something strange. We'll be back with Omer Friedlander after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show, hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest, there is so much free content out there and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. 
This takes hardcore commitment on my side. So I'm asking you, if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash writers to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is Omer Friedlander, author of the short story collection, The Man Who Sold Air in the Holy Land. Friedlander was born in Jerusalem and grew up in Tel Aviv. He earned a BA in English Literature from the University of Cambridge, England, and an MFA from Boston University. His short stories have won numerous awards and have been published in the U.S., Canada, France, and Israel. He is a StarWorks Fellow in Fiction at New York University and lives in New York City. His collection, The Man Who Sold Air in the Holy Land, primarily features stories that take place in Israel and reveal the intimate lives of people striving for connection to one another and to a deeper understanding of their own motivations and triggers. They reveal the high stakes of living in a region fraught with conflict. The stories mix fragility with hard realities, comedy with the absurd, and some verge on reading like fairy tales. The stories take place in limestone alleys in Jerusalem, the desolate Negev Desert, and the sprawling orange groves of Jaffa. We meet a divorced con artist and his daughter selling bottles of holy air to gullible tourists, a boy dangling from rooftops at night, and an Israeli volunteer at a West Bank checkpoint mourning the death of her son. We began the discussion with Omer Friedlander talking about his decision to write in English. It's interesting. The decision to to write in English specifically was maybe had more to do with needing some distance from the subject matter. So I was I was still writing about Israel, and all the stories are set in Israel and have to do with very sort of place specific issues. But I, I felt like I needed some kind of distance from it, and I think English allowed me to be more sort of probing and, and ironic and and make something that's familiar into something strange. You know, you were saying that you wrote in English because it brought you a, a sort of distance. Now that you've lived away from there, does that change how you write about Israel even more? I think it does. There's something about writers, they're sort of always in the past and in, in the present. And so I think the my childhood memories from Israel are something that I still use as as material and also just the stories I've heard and family folklore and things like that. But I think the distance does does give me some more room to, to maneuver. I think when I'm in Israel, it's not that I wasn't writing necessarily, but I think everything felt more immediate and, and kind of urgent in terms of what was stimulating my imagination. And 
being here, I, I do feel that there is a kind of necessary distance, uh, which allows me to maybe see things more clearly or to have a, a different kind of perspective, which is maybe only possible with that distance. So I wanted to ask you about something you wrote in your acknowledgments that maybe in some way was an engine for these stories. And I'm wondering if you could read on page 240 something you wrote uh, in the acknowledgments. And it starts um, on the last paragraph on that page. And you're talking about another very prominent Israeli writer. So I quoted uh, David Grossman, who is one of my favorite authors and he says and i'm quoting every one of us has a kind of official story that we present to others to strangers we meet or even to people we know but if we are lucky enough to find a good listener a sympathetic witness then they will make us tell not only our official story but the story underneath it this will force us to give up on the protection of the official story and has become like a trap and even a prison for us. The power of a good story is that it does not protect us, but instead exposes us and brings us into closer contact with our own life. Uh, so I quoted that because I, I wanted in these stories to get sort of beneath the official story, uh, unearth, unearth the more hidden stories of of individuals. Um, I think when you're writing about a place like Israel, there are these sort of fossilized official narratives and um, things that are more prominent uh, in the news. And I think the political is, is always in the background. It's, it's unavoidable. But with this collection, I did want to, to sort of zoom in and, and to tell a more intimate story of the people who live there. And I thought of myself as a kind of sympathetic listener to their stories. You say, in this collection, I wanted to unearth the hidden stories of individuals beneath the fossilized official narrative. I hope I've been a sympathetic listener to my characters, and my final thank you is to them for telling me their tales. There's a lot to unpack there, but I guess I wanted to start with thanking your characters to me, this seems like it points to whatever kind of process you have. I don't know if characters come to you in your subconscious, if they're come in a dream, if they're based on real characters that you then shape into fiction. But can you share more about what you meant by thanking them for, for talking to you? It's, it's tricky. I, I think it is a, writing is a process that a lot of it is, is subconscious and, and you're not aware of the things and, and the people that interest you and, until you write about them. Uh, so I think part of it is is planned and, and you come with some kind of idea of maybe the story you want to write. But then uh, mo a lot of it is, is sort of revealed along the way, or at least that's the way I write. It's more of an exploration. Zadie Smith has this kind of distinction in her lecture about called the, That Crafty Feeling and she says she is a micromanager rather than a macro planner. So, so the macro planners are, have all these, you know, moleskin notebooks and they outline the whole novel before they've written the title. And the micromanagers, she compares their project to building a house. And she says they have, you know, the wallpaper in place, but the stairs don't lead anywhere yet. So I, I, I think I'm more like Zadie in the sense that um, that I don't plan in advance. And I think it's becoming trickier now that I'm working on a novel <laughs> rather than stories. But 
I think it's just the way I work. And it was a big sort of revelation to me during my MFA at Boston University, where I realized that, that that's the way I work. I, I was taking a, a class with Ha Jin, who has been a mentor to me. And he he very much sort of outlines his novels in advance, or at least that's the way he, he taught us to do it. And it wasn't sort of working for me. The, the, the novel that I had been writing then was, wasn't good. And and I, I didn't understand why I wasn't writing well. And I think it, it was because things weren't surprising to me because I had planned it out. And so with the stories and also with the novel that I'm working on now, I don't plan much in advance. I, I have an, an idea um, and, I, and I start to explore it. And I think it's the same with characters. The characters aren't usually based on real people, but sometimes, you know, certain qualities of I've met make their way into the characters. I like thinking about it, and this is actually from something uh, that Big Osman said about working on one of his novels and trying to figure out one of his characters. He said he he was writing it and he couldn't get it right and it wasn't working. And eventually, he ended up writing a letter addressed to this character, and that was the way that she revealed herself to him as a character. And and I like that kind of. Um, idea of a conversation between an author and and their characters something uh, on more equal footing rather than an author pulling the strings and and making their their sort of puppet character do whatever they want because i think it feels unnatural when a certain kind of plot is forced on a character or when you want the story to contort in certain ways that that don't seem organic and if it's more of a conversation between the author and the character even if it is you know imaginary obviously i think it makes the novel or the story appear more natural and you're creating this kind of feeling of of discovery and it's almost um like what truman capote says about stories which is that they're they should feel natural like an orange is natural so something that nature has made uh, just right and that you can't imagine differently. And I think the way to do that is to listen to your characters. Yeah. And his quote that you, that you offered, he's talking about the power of a good story, that it doesn't protect us, but exposes us and brings us into closer contact with our own life. And I'm wondering with all these stories, because your stories are fairly short, you have 11 stories in, in this collection and I'm wondering if there are ways that writing those brought you into closer contact with your own life. It did. I think when I was writing them, I also discovered what I was interested in and obsessed with and fascinated by. And it surprised me because I didn't plan the stories out in advance. And it did feel like a discovery. And, and I discovered the things that, that interested me. And it wasn't autobiographical. So it didn't sort of come into close contact with my life in, in that sense that I was writing about myself. But I think sometimes writing about things that are outside of your own experience in a way that's aesthetic and, and sensitive to the challenges of that can be a way of, of discovering uh, certain things about your own identity. So it, the stories do feel very intimate and, and close to me, even though they don't reflect my experience directly. You know, some of the things that I would pick out, and then we can talk about some of these individual stories about, you know, as you mentioned, the things that obsess you, there are 
several stories where there's a character keeping a secret and it isn't just a regular secret. It's, it, it's a secret of, of maybe something that they did bad or wrong or immoral or hurtful that they've been holding on to for their whole life that affects the fate of people around them. There's a kind of way in which some of the characters who are not Israeli talks to Israelis as if like with a you word, like you do this as if each individual stands for the entire political viewpoint of a nation. There's definitely the military and the pressures of, of what going into the military mean for young men and families left behind when people die. And then the shadow that is so alive of the Holocaust. Those are some of the things I, I saw in there. Is that, do you think, a fair assessment? Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I think um, when you when I was writing about about Israel and it, it felt as if uh, history is always present. Um, so the past is always is always interwoven with with the present, and it's inescapable. And in some ways, the traumas of the past inform the present. Um, and I think that gives the situation this kind of complexity. And this feeling of circularity and cyclicality sometimes. So in one story, Checkpoint, which is about a, a mother who grieves her dead son, a soldier who was killed in Gaza, and she works at a at a checkpoint as part of a human rights organization. And she she is caught between, you know, the personal and the political. And I tried to convey that feeling of cyclicality especially with the opening image and the and the image at the end. But the opening, I described the way she washes her, her dead son's uniform and, and it spins and spins in the washing machine. And this spinning um, conveys some of that cyclicality, I, I hope. And uh, at the very end, she, she returns home from the checkpoint and I describe her home and there are succulents there and their leaves are spiraling inward in a kind of way that maybe echoes her obsessive thoughts about her, her son she's lost. And also, I think, and I, I don't think I was conscious of it when I was writing it, but these images ended up there. And, and the succulent also, you know, echoes something um, very Israeli, which is the, this image of the Israeli man as a tzabal, which is a prickly pear, you know, something that's sort of sharp on the outside and sweet on the inside. So I wanted these images to, to hover in, in the story and, you know, not, not in a sort of obvious way, but, but I think there's a reason my subconscious wrote the story in this way and had these images that, that conveyed a kind of cyclicality and repetition and something that echoed the kind of cycle of violence that's so um, part of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And sometimes it, it does feel endless in, in a way that's very very difficult and and sometimes feels hopeless but i think it's it's not a privilege um we can afford to lose hope even when things seem hopeless yes and in this story checkpoint that you're talking about it begins her name is nurit so nurit is washing her son's uniform his name is adam although he's been gone for a little while obviously that loss is so present she still has a teenage daughter to raise things with her husband aren't good. She actually got in a fight with him before he left for the military. So they didn't end on the best terms. And then she never saw him again. 
her job, what she does, and it's just pure conviction is, you know, she goes to these checkpoints. So, you know, when, when basically Arabs need to come in to Israel, I'm assuming in this story, they have to go through military checkpoints where they might get searched, they might get pulled out of line. And she's there to be kind of this neutral party to make sure that everybody's treated fairly, although maybe a little bit more she's there for the Palestinians to make sure that they are treated fairly, but she doesn't have any allies. I mean, I don't think the Palestinians are necessarily want to be allied with her, even though she's trying to help them. And the Israeli military men don't really feel good about her being there. They just think it's a pain. And then there's also some settlers there that are living um, in just some occupied territories, I believe. So she's really standing out on her own. Yeah. So the her character was partly inspired by my grandmother who worked at um, Mahsom Watch um, when she was in her mid-70s. And it's, it's you know, a difficult, difficult role. Um, I think like the story shows, and it's very, very tense and and very complicated in you this kind of intermediary in a way between the Israeli soldiers and between the Palestinians who need to get into the country to work uh, or to go to the hospital. And I remember my grandmother would, would have a video camera with her to record some of these things and, and she would uh, watch the videos over and over again and, and sort of freeze the frame and sometimes on, on a certain and what she filmed, uh, I think, really uh, affected me. And I remember looking at the images. And, and so I think that that sparked this story in, in a way. And uh, I think having this kind of setup of the woman who works at the checkpoint, the Palestinians, the Israeli soldiers, the settler, in a way felt a bit almost like staging a play. And so instead of making it artificial, I, I sort of addressed that. Um, when she imagines everything as a play. And there are a few references. Uh, she imagines what uh, Hanukh Levine, who's, who was a very famous Israeli playwright, what he would call this play that she's sort of uh, in. And she imagines it's called Requiem for a Checkpoint. And she also imagines her son's funeral as a kind of, uh, you know, Batsheva dance choreographed by Oad Narin or Pina Bausch. So I think. I wanted to bring those kinds of sensibilities because at least my grandmother and some of the uh, women I've met who, who've done this role, they come from a sort of privileged background usually and a kind of, um, you know, they go see plays and operas and, and dance and they're, they're kind of uh, very well read and all that. So I wanted that reflected in the way that she sees and interprets the world. And I think that's part of, you know, how, how you create character in a story is you don't necessarily put in every, you know, beautiful phrase you've thought of as an author, but you need to curate these things in a way that brings out the characters and the narrator's sensibilities. Uh, so I wanted with, with every story to, to echo certain things uh, about the character and the way they see the world. And the way I did it with uh, Nurit in, in Checkpoint is that she compares everything she sees or a lot of the things she sees to to plays and, and, and you know certain kinds of dance and other sort of cultural references there's a Kafka uh, piece um, 
and a poem by Yudha Michai. And, and, and so I was very interested in creating uh, that kind of character in a, in a landscape that's inhospitable, that's tense, uh, that's complicated. Yeah, and her character, she didn't really... Like sometimes in in stories, there's other people that sympathize with your main character. So they're on like some kind of side. But all she really had to sympathize with her was the reader. There was no one else like really kind of on her trajectory or philosophically where she was. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um, I I did want her to feel alone. Um and I think grief is something that makes you very lonely and losing her son. And maybe that kind of loneliness is also has a kind of manifestation in, in, in the situation of the checkpoint where she, she doesn't fit in uh, anywhere. Uh, she, and I wanted to create that kind of um, complexity of, of different, different viewpoints, different characters that sort of represent different, different viewpoints on, on the situation. But I wanted her to feel, I hope, uh, fully, fully formed and contradictory and, and complex in the way that political situation clashed with her own personal situation, with losing her son you know, in the war. And this was a war that she didn't believe in. Uh, she didn't think it was right. And I, I wanted to to have a, a character that, that felt alone in their convictions, in their beliefs. But she still goes there, uh, you know, every week. So a character that's also tough and, and resilient. There's another common thread in many of these stories which have to do with violence, but I don't mean violence of the war it's, I mean, some of it is violence of the war for sure, but some of it is just how violent the world becomes when war is going on and how dangerous it is. I'm specifically thinking about the story Walking Shiva, which is a story, I'm not really sure what year it takes place, but there is a family named the Freedmans and they have a daughter, a mother who's um, crippled or paralyzed she can't walk so they have a makeshift kind of wheelchair for her that's kind of like a real a wheelbarrow and her daughter Rachel and then the two brothers are at the war and they their names are Aaron and Avraham and so their the first letter of their name is A and the story begins when they get uh, a, a, someone who comes to their door to say a Friedman has died, Aleph Friedman in, in Hebrew, but they don't know which son and or which brother. So the mother and the sister go on a seven day trek to try to go to the office to figure out which of the, the brothers has died. But it's very dangerous for them to walk seven days. There's a lot of peril, a lot of physical risk to the daughter who has beautiful red hair. I just wanted to see if we could talk more about this story, about um, the culture that was going on at the time. I, I wasn't even sure which war it was and why it was so dangerous for them. And 
the name is also very close to yours. So I didn't know if it meant something even more for your life. Yeah, with this story, uh, Walking Shiva, I I didn't choose a specific war and time period in Israel, uh, even though maybe parts of it, certain things evoke, you know, the, the 48 war. Um, but I wanted it to be more of a fantastical kind of story and a, and a fable and um, a, a landscape that is violent in a kind of dystopian way. I think you're exactly right. I wanted the landscape itself to be sort of inhospitable and frightening uh, and this journey to be very difficult. There, there are certain, you know, obstacles along the way in, in their journey. And uh, they, the, the mother and daughter meet this man who resembles a wolf. And, you know, because the daughter has red hair and there's sort of... Um, all these little clues. I wanted it to, you know, evoke the, the fairy tale of Red Riding Hood um, in certain ways, and some of the wolf's dialogue, um, you know, echoes that that fairy tale. But I also wanted to to show a kind of resilience and strength of these two women, because the the brothers who are off at war, and you know, the women, the mother and daughter, have to discover which one of them is dead. In the end, they discover that both of them have died. I wanted the focus to be on the mother and daughter um, without men. So it, I guess it it was a story that used the, the fairy tale in a way, but it, it is it's obviously a, a kind of retelling that didn't make you know Red Riding Hood into a victim, but a, a kind of active agent of her own life. And she's very, um, you know, she builds the wheelbarrow for her mother and she takes her on this journey and she needs to find out what happened to the brothers. Um, And also their, their relationship is, is very complicated. Uh, It's the only story in the collection, I believe, where I switch points of view uh, in the middle and then switch back. But I wanted to also be in the mother's head for a moment to, I mean, to show how how she's she's feeling on this journey, but also to get to a certain line where she says that she wishes it was her daughter that had been killed and not one of the brothers, not one of her sons. And I wanted that to hover, you know, in the reader's mind when they were reading uh, about this kind of dangerous journey. And there, I think there's certain inspirations behind it and it's sort of a mix of a lot of things, but... One of the things I was thinking about, uh, which led to this idea of a Shiva, was a family story. So on my mother's side, my sort of, what was it? I don't know, it would be a great-grandfather or something. He came from uh, Belarus to Canada. Uh, the father of the family uh, went to Canada to work, I think, in the fur industry. And his family was meant to join him um, later. And so there was a specific ship they were supposed to go on and uh, and arrive uh, in Canada. And so they they were getting ready to go, and you know they went to the ship and and this big family, lots of kids. And then they discovered that they'd left uh, the daughter's precious violin behind, uh, and they ended up not going, not boarding the ship, and you know boarding the next one. And the ship that had gone without them, that they were supposed to be on, sunk. And so 
the father of the family, uh, because there was no way of communicating back then, when he heard that the ship had sunk, he thought his whole family was on it. And so he sat Shiva for them. And then, you know, a week later, or however long it was, they arrived on the next ship. Uh, so I, I was interested in this idea of sitting Shiva for someone, for a family member that you're not quite sure if they're dead or alive. And it's this weird kind of limbo state. And I think that's part of what inspired this story where the journey itself is a kind of Shiva and you know it's a play on words because people say you know sitting Shiva and obviously the story is called walking Shiva and so the Shiva is, is the journey itself um, and they end up you know walking Shiva for both brothers you know a week there and a week back um, but they don't know which one of them they, they're grieving for and it ends up being both but I wanted that kind of ambiguity to to follow the story along on, on their journey. I wanted to talk about the Sephardi survivor. <laughs> so this is also a story that's kind of in some like liminal fantastic space. Like it's not completely based in reality. The gist of it is that there's these two young siblings who at school, there's like a day where you bring in a Holocaust survivor and they've never had someone in their family to bring in. And they're at the grocery store and they notice this man who is a survivor. So they basically, he's old, he's not that lucid. And so they bring him back to the home, their home and plan to get his real story of survival um, from the Holocaust. And then they want to tweak it. So it's more dramatic so that when they bring him in, they, they get all the attention and at night, he cooks um, in their house and their parents don't really say anything, but they're basically keeping him captive so he can come to their school and give a talk about what it's like. And so they can get a lot of praise. It's almost like a competition of pain and it's so unethical what they're doing. And so the, the two brothers are, are Sephardi and then they kidnap um, a survivor who, who is Ashkenazi and, and the, the classmates are who have relatives that are survivors are Ashkenazi. And uh, the story, I mean, initially began when I heard a friend of mine who has family from Iraq, so he's a Sephardi rather than Ashkenazi. And he said, you know, in a kind of offhand way, you know, I was always jealous of my classmates, my Ashkenazi classmates who had relatives that were survivors of the Shoah. And I thought it was such a strange uh, thing to say, but, you know, the more I thought about it, the more it kind of fascinated me. This idea of uh, a competition of pain, like you said, um, and of, of trauma and sort of family uh, loss. And I wanted to write a kind of absurdist story in a way about this kind of um, mentality, this kind of social cachet of having a relative that's a survivor in a way. And, you know, I created a, a nemesis for them, for these two brothers, and it's this boy called um, Matan Moldechai Mendelbaum. And he has a grandfather who's a big Holocaust historian, and, you know, he calls him the Elvis of the Holocaust because he's so famous and he's written so many books and won awards. Um, and so that's their kind of nemesis in the school and they want to outdo him and uh, bring someone who has an even better story. And so they 
they find Yuda, who's this uh, lonely uh, survivor. He's wandering around the supermarket and they bring him home and they want to rehearse, you know, the best uh, survivor story in a way. And so Yuda tells him, tells them his, his real story. And it, it's very, it's, it's a very good story, I think, um, just in terms of, you know, it's exciting and it's got all these twists, uh, but they think it's not good enough and they want to make it even better. And they kind of rehearse with him a mishmash of all the World War II movies they've seen and you know, create this character of a kind of uh, wolf Jew and a pianist who mesmerizes Nazi officers and all that kind of stuff. And then they bring him to school uh, eventually to tell his story, but he he freezes up and he can't he can't say anything. And it's this moment where he doesn't want to disappoint them, and, but also he feels like it's this kind of strange, almost like a popularity contest. And you know, one survivor in the back is doing magic tricks he's learned in the ghetto, so it has this kind of absurdist bent to it. Um, and in the end, I wanted him to sort of um, create an almost like an alternate version of events a different history for himself and he imagines that he was actually born in um, Morocco and that his uh, father was the tailor of the king and he's wandering around the palace um, between the peacocks this kind of very um, elegant image and I guess it, it was a story about storytelling and about the ways we can invent our own stories and in some ways forget forget the past or reinvent the past. I mean, the brothers want a different kind of family history and, and the survivor wants a different kind of history for himself. I mean, part of the reason I wrote the story, I think I felt in between... <laughs> the character of the brothers and in between the character of Mendelbaum, who's their nemesis, because um, my grandfather is sort of a famous uh, Holocaust historian, uh, Saul Friedlander, and he's written a lot of books about it. And so going to school in Israel, at least his name was very well known in, in history class. It was always this kind of awkward thing where, um, you know, when we had to sit our final exams for history uh, in high school, uh, we got a passage from one of his books to to write about, and I don't know. It was it was kind of strange being in that position. Um, and then on the other side of my family, my grandmother's from Egypt, and there's this thing that happens in Israel where um, high schoolers go to to visit the camps as a kind of trip, you know, when they're 17 or something, and. I didn't end up going because it felt to me like a very strange mix of going as a, as a kind of field trip, you know, with kids. Um, and it's understandable that there, there needs to be a release of, of all this pent up grief and, and energy. And you're in high school and you're drinking and treating it as a kind of, um, yeah, as, as a kind of school trip um, mixed in with, you know, actually going to the camps and, and hearing about the history and meeting survivors, um, so it was it was strange for me to to think about that kind of mix, and I didn't want to go because of the because of those reasons. I wanted to go on my own, uh, or with my grandfather, or, or family, and to do it in a different way. 
So that kind of strangeness about the way history is, um, especially the history of the Holocaust, is uh, is remembered and represented in, and can be also manipulated in a way that that feels um, political or feels um, like it betrays some kind of more human story uh, of survivors. Uh, felt like something I wanted to to tackle in in this story, um, the way the way it's taught in schools, for example, with this trip and all that. So I wrote the story, and I know I needed to to find a kind of angle and to make it into maybe an absurdist story because I think it's very difficult, maybe impossible, to write a sort of very straightforward, linear story about the Holocaust because it ends up feeling either cliche or or melodramatic or sensationalized. So I knew I didn't want to do that. And I, I can't really think of a single writer who does that well. I think the writers that write about it well do it in a way that's roundabout. Someone like Modiano, for example, sort of reconstructs history in his books, or this investigation into the his, that history of the Holocaust, um, but they don't write about it directly. And it kind of reminds me of a quote I, I really love. Um, by Calvino in, in his lecture about lightness in writing. And he gives an example from Greek mythology. And he says that um, the Medusa, you know, turns everything to stone with her gaze. And the only hero who's able to defeat the Medusa is Perseus. And it's because he's indirect with his gaze. And he can only see the Medusa through the reflection on his shield which also reflects the sky and the clouds. And I think with writing about certain things, especially the Holocaust, it's tricky to be direct. And I think sometimes the only way to write about it in a way that feels true is indirectly. And maybe that's part of, I mean, maybe part of the reason is that I'm third generation. That's definitely a part of it. But I think, I do think that to write about it, I needed to be indirect with my gaze. Has your grandfather, is he still alive? Did he read that story? And what, what is it like for you to write in his shadow? Like there's something kind of meta about that. He did read the story, yeah, and, and he thought it was, it was really, really funny. Um, but um, yeah, and I remember someone in school when I, when I told them about my grandfather, they were like, oh, the Elvis of the Holocaust. And that kind of made me laugh. But I think... It is tricky to write, you know, in the shadow of of someone who who's you know such a um, such an important writer. I think it makes a difference that the writing is is sort of very different. I mean, he's written uh, history books and he's written um, autobiographies. And writing fiction, I think, gives me some more freedom in the sense that I'm very interested in, and I think you've mentioned this, that a lot of the stories have a historical background and they're very interested in how the history affects the present, but it's still fiction. And I think fiction gives me that freedom to imagine, which is quite different from writing, you know, a historical text. I, I When I was starting out and you know, writing my first stories a bit more seriously, I guess I was maybe you know, 19. He was one of my earliest readers um, my parents were were first but I did send him little stories and things like that and you know he was really encouraging and you know he said you, you know you're a writer 
that gave me confidence, even though I think looking back, I think the stories were pretty terrible. But um, but it did give me confidence. So I think it was important to be in a in a certain kind of dialogue with him through writing and and also, I mean, just just in general, uh, he's a very good storyteller in person. And I remember actually when I was 13 years old, so me and my twin brother, uh, we we met up with him because we needed to um, to write a kind of uh, family tree for for our class. And you know, take every family member's story and, and, and write it down and kind of create this this book. So we said, okay, we'd meet up with him and he'll tell us his story. And you know, I was thirteen. I, I knew generally the big outline of his story, uh, but I didn't know the specifics really. So we met up with him, and our dad bought us this tape recorder uh, so we could record and later transcribe and all that. And we sat down at this restaurant. It was a French restaurant. And our grandfather, you know, he wanted to, to treat us and he like ordered French fries and all that stuff. And then he started telling us his story. You know, he was born in, in Prague and during the war, he was hidden in a Catholic monastery and his parents were caught and sent to Auschwitz. Um, they were killed. He grew up in this monastery at a very young age. And so he didn't entirely forget that he was Jewish, but he sort of embraced this kind of Catholic identity in certain ways and even thought of joining the priesthood. Uh, and later when he learned what was actually happening in the war, you know, while he was hidden away in a monastery in France and what happened to his parents and everything. And when, um, when he was told about that, he became a Zionist and he, he moved to, to Israel uh, and, and, you know, embraced a, a Jewish identity and also changed his name. Um, so his, his name changed a couple of times. He was born Pavel, and he, when he was hidden in the monastery, he became uh, Paul Henry, uh, a more French Catholic name. When he moved to Israel, he became Shaul. And later in his life, when he was living in America and Los Angeles, he became Saul. And so anyway, he was telling us this whole story in the French restaurant. And we were so kind of preoccupied with eating the French fries that we forgot to press record. So nothing really... Uh, stayed from that conversation but i think in a way you know he i mean he's written a memoir uh, about about his early life and also about his later life so the story is there um in the way that he tells it but i was just interested in this kind of um way that history can be forgotten and lost and reconstructed and hearing the story from him <laughs> i think is, is different when he tells it than when you're reading it so that's part of why I wrote the story. Is there anything else you want to talk about before I get to the final questions? There is one thing I did want to read. Um, there's a there's a poem that I quote in the first story, Jaffa Oranges. It's a poem by Yudam Chai. And I was wondering if I could uh, read it in Hebrew since, you know, I, I obviously wrote the collection in, in English, but Hebrew was is my mother tongue, and, and also it's a language that was on my mind when I was writing the collection, even though it, it is in English. Um, so I wanted to read the poem. Uh, it's called Eyes by Yudha Michai. Enaim. Enei b'ni agadol g'tenim shchorot shenolad besof ha-kaitz, v'enei b'ni akatan tzlulot g'pilchei tapuzim shenolad be'onatam, 
ועיני בתי הקטנה, עגולות, כענבים הראשונים, וכולם מתוקים בדאגתי. ועיני אדוני משוטטות בכל הארץ, ועיניי שלי מחפשות תמיד ליד ביתי. אדוני בעסקי עיניים ובעסקי פירות, ואני בעסקי דאגה. My eldest son's eyes are like black figs, for he was born at the end of the summer. And my youngest son's eyes are clear, like orange slices, for he was born in their season. And the eyes of my little daughter are round like the first grapes, and all are sweet in my worry. And the eyes of the Lord roam the earth, and my eyes are always looking round my house. God's in the eye business. And the fruit business. I'm in the worry business. So I know you just read that. Um, is, there, is there something that you would like to read that influenced you by another author? Yes, yeah, so I wanted to read a little fable by Kafka. Alas, said the mouse, the whole world is growing smaller every day. At the beginning, it was so big That I was afraid. I kept running and running, and I was glad when I saw walls far away, to the right and left. But these long walls have narrowed so quickly that I am in the last chamber already, and there in the corner stands the trap that I must run into. You only need to change your direction, said the cat, and ate it up. Do you want to talk about why you chose that? Yeah. Um, I grew up in Tel Aviv. Um, only about five minutes away from the house where Kafka's literary estate was kept hidden for years in this apartment filled with cats uh, on uh, Spinoza Street. And so I feel like I have this kind of uh, uh, the spirit of Kafka hovering over the neighborhood. Um, but also, uh, more generally, I think Kafka's work speaks to me because it's this rare combination, I think, of Uh, someone who's writing is is both hilarious and devastating and i think that comes across in a little fable where it's it's funny um but it's also very sad um what happens with this mouse in a kind of existential way and that blend of humor and, and tragedy really appeals to me as a writer can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft Yeah, so I'll read an ending, actually, uh, which was difficult to write. So this is the final paragraph uh, from a short story in the collection, uh, Scheherazade and Radio Station 97.2 FM. Near where I grew up in the Golan Heights, Ziv said, there are thousands of active landmines. The only inhabitants in this dangerous no-go zones are a rare breed of cunning wolves. So small, they don't weigh enough to trigger the explosives. They've made the dangerous landscape their home. They stalk the rancher's cattle and drag their prey back to their lair where the hunters cannot go. When I was a teenager, I was unhappy and liked to get drunk by myself and wander away from home in the dark. One night, I walked too far. It was pitch black, and without noticing, I stumbled onto a field of landmines. Any false step, and I would be blown away, reduced to nothing but dust. 
I waited and waited, paralyzed with fear, unable to sit down or even move my feet. Suddenly, I saw a pair of glimmering green eyes. A wolf appeared out of the darkness, and somehow I knew that I needed to follow it. I walked slowly, a few paces behind the wolf. I stepped where it stepped, followed its exact movements, trusting it completely with my life. And it led me out of the field of landmines and back to my home. Do you want to say anything more about that? Yeah, I think with this ending, um, it was tricky because this is a story about storytelling. It has the structure of a fairy tale or, or a joke with three parts, you know, the setup, the buildup, and the punchline. Um, and the ending, which was set up from the very beginning, um, was difficult to write because I faced the challenge of writing a kind of death foretold story. Um, but I still needed to keep it suspenseful and surprising. Uh, so I figured that I needed a reversal. Uh, throughout the story, Scheherazade tells stories and they come true. And in the end, I needed uh, Ziv to tell a story to Scheherazade and for her to listen. Um, and it's a story that I think leaves room for am ambiguity. It isn't clear if he dies or gets to go home. And I leave that up to the reader. Where do you write? Part of the time um, at home, which is a tiny studio. Um, but mostly, or at least over the past couple months, I've been writing in a shared writing space um, in the East Village. And it lets, allows me to kind of uh, concentrate more in this space and nice view. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I'm in Tel Aviv. I sometimes go for a run on the beach. Uh, but in New York, I like to go to jazz clubs uh, with friends. And you know, my twin brother is a jazz musician, and my friends are. So um, sometimes Smalls or Mesro or other West Village jazz clubs. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My parents uh, were my first readers. Now my agent and my editor uh, I show work to. Um, with the novel I'm working on now, I've shown my agent, my editor parts, but mostly I like to keep it to myself. And I like what Amos Oz said about showing works in progress. He says that the x-rays can harm the baby. How have you dealt with rejection? That's right. I think you're constantly being rejected in you know, some way or another. Um, but the face of those rejections changes throughout your career. So you know, first it could be literary magazines and agents and then it's book prizes and end of the year lists um, but the only constant is that there's always someone out there uh, doing better than you in a way winning more awards or getting more attention and I think that's very a very dangerous kind of mentality uh, that kind of writer's ego and and it hurts the writing and makes you sort of self-conscious uh, to constantly be thinking about other people's success uh, which is why I'm, I'm not on social media <laughs> but I think it's um it's best to just accept that, you know, a writing life is full of these rejections and, you know, to celebrate the success when it happens and to keep writing regardless of how your work is perceived. And what is your favorite word? So my favorite word is in Hebrew, luz, and it refers to a small uh, sort of almond-shaped bone, either at the top or the bottom of the spine. Scholars disagree <laughs> exactly where it's located, but according to tradition and Jewish mysticism, and Kabbalah, it's the loose bone is the home of the soul. But they're not sure where it is. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really appreciative. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been it's been great to do. You know, I feel like it was the questions were so were so insightful and and interesting and so in depth. And I don't think I've had the chance to. You know, most of the interviews I did were short and sort of. Uh, you know, so so I'm really I'm really glad I I got to do it with you. If you like today's show with Omer Friedlander, author of the short story collection "The Man Who Sold Air in the Holy Land." Check out my interview with Israeli writer Yishai Sharid, author of The Memory Monster. We talked about the relationship between memory and the Holocaust, not holding back in writing, and how violence influences our lives. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 375 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Peter Orner, Elizabeth Strout, and Katie Standifer. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.